Another Way to Play, episode 100. We approach things as professionally as possible, right? We are not one guy in a blog in a basement. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but we have a professional team of writers and editors, contributors from around the globe, some of them record-setting athletes, respected coaches. This is David Thomas Tao, CEO of Barbend, and if you want to learn more to make the next chapter of your life better than the last, then you should be listening to Another Way to Play with my good friend, Hans Struzina. Welcome to Another Way to Play, your wake-up call to finally make a difference by creating a life defined by freedom. This is about entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and industry professionals that have left the nine-to-five rat race behind by taking that personal leap from where they were to where they want to be. It's time to stop going through the motions, stop hitting the snooze button on your life, and get the insight and inspiration to make the next chapter of your life better than your last. This is Another Way to Play with your host, Hans Struzina. This is Another Way to Play. I am your host, Hans Strazina, and I believe that if you trade hours for dollars, you will never achieve true freedom in your life. Today's guest is David Thomas Tao. He's the CEO and co-founder of Barbend.com, which is a media brand that provides multiple platform coverage of news, analysis, training, and opinion and strength training sports. Uh, in this one, guys, we get into... His humble beginnings, uh, which started out actually getting into the sport of weightlifting in a snowplow shed in Massachusetts during college. Uh, Really interesting start to his world uh, or to his entry into the world of strength sports. But he took that passion and that uh, love for, for those sports that he learned and parlayed them into a media company, ultimately co founding it with a couple other guys who were also into the idea that he. Uh, brought them relative to this. Uh, We talk about a couple of different things, but we definitely go pretty deep into his background, his backstory, and some of the similarities that we shared in our beginnings, humble beginnings, that is, of sports, uh, some of the facilities that we started, and how that kind of built some character and built some grit, and then um, built a really interesting love for the sport that then he parlayed into creating this company. Uh, We also talk about how at the time CrossFit was becoming really popular and how that rising tide, if you will, lifted all boats. And then he kind of took that opportunity and ran with it and created um, barben.com. We also uh, get into his strategy on consistently putting out quality content and then his theory and thoughts on having multiple income streams in your business uh, and why it's important to do that. Uh, And then how you balance the um, kind of being a master of one vertical as opposed to just like a jack of all trades and how that's sort of a moving target. Very interesting conversation there. So listen up. Before we get there, uh, we want to thank you so much for listening. And if you're getting value out of this, please head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. Really helps me grow and get better. I read those. I try and implement the changes into the show. Um, so that feedback is critical. Plus, it helps me grow the show and the audience. So thanks in advance for that. And without any further ado, let's get it going with my buddy, David Tao. David, thank you so much for being on the show, man. Really appreciate you taking some time with us. 
Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited about this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, Barbend, you've got a lot there that's a really cool brand and you've done a lot with that. And we were just talking about before we hit record, you kind of reorganized some things and I want to get into all of that. But before we go there, let's back up and build a little bit of context for our audience and talk about where your journey actually began. I love this podcast because you frame things through storytelling. And I think that to get to know a person, it always helps to get some context. I think it's different for different people. And I love how you, you give folks a platform for that. Thank you. Yeah. My story as it relates specifically to, to entrepreneurship uh, actually begins in basically an old truck warehouse in Waltham, Massachusetts. Uh, and it's a weird, it's, I need to give context for the context, but basically Barbend is a uh, strength sports website, and one of the sports we cover is weightlifting, and it was one of my first passions. So in college, I uh, was a rugby player and had a, a series of injuries, which we were talking about a little bit before, uh, before this recording, mm-hmm. including a knee injury that required surgery. I won't go into the nitty-gritty details, but, you know, they're there. Or possibly gory, given the fact that it's a knee in rugby. <laughs> you can put, you can put <laughs> two and two together, right? Yeah, uh, sure. And when I was... I basically struggled to get back to a point where I was comfortable on my legs uh, at, a, at a certain point. And I was kind of offhandedly, I'd always, I'd done weight training for a number of years and I, I enjoyed being in the gym and like off season training, but I didn't really know that strength sports were a thing. I didn't know you could really like compete in weightlifting or powerlifting or all these things that I kind of take for granted now. And someone told me, they said, Hey, if you're having trouble getting back on the field or getting back to form, you should find some weightlifters. Uh, and I said, weightlifters, you mean bodybuilders? They're like, no, weightlifters, people who know how to snatch and clean and jerk. It's the strength sport that's contested in the Olympics. Um, so, you know, you're one of many Olympians I get to uh, talk to on a regular basis. Not that many rowers though. So y'all, y'all are very friendly. Um, and I was able to find, this is back before CrossFit was a really big thing. It led mm-hmm. to like an explosion of CrossFit gyms. And, and now a lot of people know what the snatch and the clean and jerk are and they can go, you know, they have bumper plates and they have barbells, et cetera. But back in the mid 2000s, it wasn't really the case. Mm-hmm. And if you wanted to learn how to snatch and clean and jerk, it was, it was kind of a tough sport to get into yeah. in the United States. So I was able to find a group. I was going to college uh, near Boston at the time and I was able to find a group that uh, did train in weightlifting, had some fantastic coaches and fantastic athletes, uh, but uh, they were a little out of the way and they basically trained out of a, a truck port or a place where they winter snow plows. This is yeah. Massachusetts. And in order to train, we would have to move the trucks and the equipment and like bags of salt out of the warehouse and then set up our platforms for the training session. And after we were done training, we had to take down our platforms, move our barbells. We had a squat rack that was built out of old hubcaps and some like tube steel. And the people there were so generous. The weightlifters I met were so generous. They would pick me up at school. I didn't have a car. They would drive me out to training multiple times a week. They would give, I didn't have much money as a college student. They gave me free coaching advice. They coached me at competitions. It was such an amazing community. And so years later on, when I came to a point in my career where I was given the opportunity or felt like I had the opportunity to start a media brand, which is something I was always interested in, I felt like that community was ripe to grow. And I wanted to try and give back to that community in a big way, specifically the weightlifting community, but broader strength sports, because that sense of camaraderie, that generosity, I was like, if this is really what's bringing these people together, 
then you know, maybe I can make this my full-time job. Maybe this can be more than just a hobby. Maybe I can immerse myself in this community, build a business in these communities and get a lot out of that. Maybe that's what I want my life to be for the next, you know, however many number of years. And, and really that was kind of the genesis for the idea for Barbet. That's so cool. I mean, that I love that that's how it started. And I haven't talked about my like early years of high school, but like your experience of literally training out of a place to store snow plows yeah. is very reminiscent of my beginning of my rowing career. We had a boathouse on Lake Sammamish. For those of you who know where Lake Sammamish is near Redmond, Washington, which where Microsoft is headquartered. But anyways, it's literally on a county parkland and the structure that it was located in used to be the sewage treatment plant for the county lands. And then they took all that equipment and put it somewhere else, but the structure remained. So we got to use it as a boathouse. So I, I totally, and we didn't have running water. You know, we had outhouses. It sounds zero insulation. So I can totally picture what you're talking about. You know, and the fact that we even had that place to train, that we were training there because we basically got kicked out of a series of gyms. Like the group of weightlifters got kicked out of a series of Mm -hmm. gyms because like weightlifting can be very difficult, hard on a floor. So they had to find a floor that could support it. Well, apparently a place where you store snow plows and snow trucks has a pretty strong floor. (laughs) And even the person whose property it was basically let us use it out of the goodness Uh of his heart because he was a himself a weightlifter who was very passionate about it. Um, and have been weightlifting his whole life. This kind of like obscure, weird little sport at the time. It's grown a lot since. And so, yeah, we had to turn on, we had to like bring in portable heaters to heat it mm-hmm. up during the very mm-hmm. cold Boston winters. Um, it was all sorts of stuff that was kind of jerry-rigged together. But I look back on that time very fondly, Yeah, uh, as I'm sure you probably do, you know, storing boats in, in the old sewage treatment plant. Man, and just that vision of what you described, like moving snow plows, you guys are like doing hubcaps and aluminum racks, like you just described, like how freaking Northwest or excuse me, Northeast does it get? Like you guys are probably having to dig out the thing in the snow and, you know, no insulation. It's just like such a classic, like blue collar thing to do. You know, it's like this vision of the Northeast that I have. (laughs) Maybe it's just me. It's very much that. And I think, you know, Boston has this reputation, especially the outlying communities in Boston have this reputation for being like a little bit grizzled, a bit blue collar. Um, some of them take the look at, they hear the word mass hole and they think that's like a, uh, not an insult, but a compliment. You know, they really take that as part of the identity. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was this kid from Kentucky who was going to school there. And a lot of these people were like Boston natives or locals and they just embraced me as one of their own, you know? And, um, mm-hmm. I never adopted the Boston accent, uh, but I, I did feel a lot of love. And I think there's something to be said for like you, it sounds like you really assimilated into that culture by really, well, for one, putting your head down and doing some work, but then showing talent and being willing to contribute. And then that obviously parlayed into Barbend, which you were talking about earlier, giving back to that community. So my wife's family is from Boston. And in my experience, um, if you are willing to shovel some snow or do some hard work, like you get accepted into that community way better than if you're some, you know, uh, avocado toast eating California guy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's, you know, the thing about weightlifting is like, you're going to build some calluses on your hands. You know what I mean? Like, it's not a sport you do. Rowing is not a sport you do if you're not willing to put in some work and get up really early on some cold mornings, right? Oh, yeah. Weightlifting... I don't know if it has that reputation, but I think that is like an ethos totally. that kind of per- 
permeates. And, and actually, you know, uh, one of our, a couple of our coaches at the time, um, were older, uh, Russian, actually former Soviet weightlifters. And they had oh, some stories of like, the story. oh my goodness, like <laughs> walk 10 miles uphill both ways and uh, like to get Thought to the of a grizzly bear and then did their training session. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I'm sure some of it was hyperbole, but it was kind of like, you never felt like it was appropriate to complain, mm-hmm. you know, when they're going through like describing what it took for them to be able to train yeah. when, you know, when oh. they were my age or our age. And it, it's like, yeah, I mean, things tend to get better over time and, and uh, even at the time, I think we'd kind of laugh it off. Like we didn't have a super even or like level floor to always train on. So we were always trying to figure out like the best part of the floor to train. And for weightlifting, like you really need a level floor. Right. If something's on a slope, it makes it pretty difficult. So we would laugh about it at the time. And, and I think part of that was because no one was there for their job. Weightlifting was very much a hobby for all of us. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to kind of appreciate some of the absurdest moments. I think when you're a professional athlete, I was never at that level for weightlifting, just to clarify. Like I get asked that sometimes by people who don't know of my background. I'm like, hey, just to clarify, I work with some of the best weightlifters in the world and in and in history. I am not one of them. And yeah. you know, not I'm not good enough to even tie their shoelaces in that regard. Um, so I do think that you get the luxury of kind of laughing off some of that stuff when you're a hobbyist. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, it builds some character when it's not perfect and you got to figure it out anyways. And there's some lessons there, regardless of if you're a high level competitive weightlifter, or if you're just kind of an amateur, that's just trying to build some grit and gain some muscle and learn how to do a snatch. Like, you know, so you took all of that. And, and as you said, you parlayed that into a media brand. Can you talk about, taking that passion and that community and that experience you had and then turning that into something that is now quite mainstream. Yeah, I think it is worth setting the stage here in that CrossFit and the explosive growth and popularity of CrossFit did a lot of the work as far as bringing not just weightlifting, but strength sports mainstream. There are still some Mm -hmm. strength sports that are very much obscure or that are more obscure, Mm -hmm. but CrossFit was a huge facilitator in taking, okay, these barbell movements and putting barbells in people's hands basically and being like, Hey, you can go to the gym and you can do more than a bench press and a bicep curl, right? You can do these dynamic movements. You can do these things that are um, often described as, you know, gymnastics with a barbell. And, and I think that right between, you know, call it 2007 and 2016 uh, CrossFit was hugely impactful in taking those mainstream in, you know, people open CrossFit gyms, which made equipment more available companies then, started in order to, you know, Rogue Fitness is a company that's grown explosively. uh, And largely that's, I think, due to CrossFit's popularization. And so by the time I was at the point in my career where I felt like I could found or co-found a media brand and I wanted to make it about strength sports, it was kind of already after this momentum had brought strength sports more mainstream than they'd ever been before, at least in American society. Now, I think there's a lot of room to go. I think that People know what CrossFit is, but weightlifting and powerlifting and strongman and other strength sports, uh, I think, have a lot of room to grow mainstream and become a part of different people's you know, lifestyles. Um, but that passion wasn't the only factor. I needed to understand, uh, or at least I was able to understand and identify that, like, hey, here's a rising tide that really has lifted all ships. And 
it would have been very difficult to get barbend off the ground at an earlier stage when there wasn't as much awareness about strength sports. Sure. Now, general strength training, there are a lot of sites on the web that have been around for a long time about general strength training, especially in the bodybuilding realm, right. um, specifically training for aesthetics. But if you don't have a certain kind of, um, call it critical mass of awareness, it's very difficult to build a, an audience. Totally. Because there will always be that niche crowd and, you know, the people who are just in the wings that are always into the, the obscure weird stuff, quote unquote. Um, but you're right to get the masses behind something and CrossFit did an amazing job for Olympic lifting and for my sport rowing because they yeah. included the rowing machine in there. And now all concept Two, which is the company that is one of like two companies that makes oars for rowing. Well, there's a couple more, but they're one of the main ones. And then also the ergometer, which they call the rower, um, you know, it lifted it all. And and we felt it as rowers just as much as, or not quite as much, but similarly to how the uh, strength community did. I think we haven't seen the end of that, by the way. And I think that CrossFit is still very much around. I think it's, you know, it's eclipsed the fad that I think a lot of people in the fitness industry said it was going to be or predicted it was going to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, But CrossFit, you know, it's reached a, a maybe something akin to a saturation point, at least in North America, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there aren't 5,000 CrossFit boxes opening a year in the United States right now. Um, so in fact, some would argue there's been, and I'm not referencing any specific numbers here, but some would argue there has been um, some consolidation of CrossFit boxes. Then they have an interesting model. They're not a franchise model or an affiliate right. model, which, you know, uh, makes it a slightly different situation than, than some might expect. But I think you are finding, even if CrossFit's not growing as explosively as it once was, you're finding that more people are going toward to these other specific sports from CrossFit. So it could be going toward rowing. And I know some people who found rowing or the ergometer mm-hmm. through CrossFit and started training specifically for indoor rowing competitions right? because they enjoyed yep. it. Same with weightlifting, same with powerlifting. So I think in my neck of the woods, so to speak, we think, oh, people find CrossFit and then they realize they really just like snatching and clean and jerking and they don't like getting their heart rates up. They like sitting down between sets. You know, we find weightlifters through CrossFit, but I think you bring up a fantastic point. It's not just a strength sports. It is also rowing. It is running. I know a lot of, uh, maybe not a lot of, but a number of runners, they consider themselves primarily runners and they didn't find running until they had actually taken up CrossFit, um, which is something I, I don't know if I would have expected five or six years ago. So Yeah, that's super interesting. So, you know, the rising tide helps all ships. Like there's a trend available. You sort of had this moment where you're in this uh, strength community, you're doing these crazy workouts in the snowplow shed. um, And then CrossFit kind of comes along and it's sort of this perfect moment, right? But then obviously you had to have the initiative to start and start to get in with barbend. So like, can you talk about your personal um, journey there and like why you started it and then sort of how you grew it. Sure. So I've been involved in the digital media since I graduated college. You know, I, I started as a, an intern and writer at fortune.com. I did some writing for Forbes. I was always interested in journalism. I thought I wanted to be a journalist. And shortly thereafter, I became involved in 
health and fitness journalism, not strength sports specifically, but started working for a number of brands um, that had produced health and fitness content. Some were content companies. And then later on, I spent a number of years as a consultant for companies of all different sizes, startups to Fortune 500 that needed to produce content in the health and fitness space. Could be relevant to products they were selling, could be for partnerships, uh, could be because they were sponsoring something like the Olympic Games. Like there was just a huge variety. Are we talking like blogs and social media posts and all that stuff? Or what are we talking? Yeah, it was a huge variety. So I went from being like a a kind of entry-level journalist to being a health and fitness journalist to then being a consultant for brands that had to produce a variety of health and fitness content. So uh, yeah, a lot of it was like corporate blogs, uh, internal communication for like corporate wellness stuff. Um, uh, Some of it was... Uh, work with companies that were producing wearable devices in the fitness mm-hmm. tracking space, kind of in the first phase of that. Um, some of them were app companies. They're like, hey, we have this fitness tracking app or you know, this nutrition tracking app. Or, or some of it was actually, you know, I did a lot of work for companies big and small that didn't really know what they want to do in the health and fitness space and wanted to do some fact finding and research through content and actually get to know their audience. What does their audience want from a health and fitness perspective. It could be an add-on or a new suite of products. So I spent a number of years after, after being a fitness and health and fitness journalist in New York City, I spent a number of years where I was just traveling around a lot. It was marketing these services. It was marketing gyms. I I worked with companies that were owning and operating gyms and opening gyms. Um, And I spent a few years doing that. I was basically like a road warrior Mm -hmm. for health and fitness content. And Barbend came about at a time when I decided I really wanted to reestablish roots in New York City. It was always my home base, but You know, when you're on the road 26, 27 weeks of the year, nothing really feels like a home base. And and so Barbend was started because I met my now co-founders and business partners on a a separate project, realized they were based in New York City. I think we were actually first connected when when I wasn't even in the city. And um, I saw they had some really cool experience regarding SEO and building content brands thought we could combine forces. And, and that's when the idea for, I kind of brought the idea for Barbend to them and, and we decided, hey, this is something we should really pursue together. Wow. So there's sort of an aligning of worlds. You're getting a lot of experience in that content creation space and then obviously specific to fitness. And then this opportunity comes up where you just meet these guys and you're saying, hey, let, let's, com-, like you said, combine forces and move forward. Now, even though you had all this expertise, they had the SEO, you had the content writing, you know, I'm sure you guys brought other skills into the play here, but there had to have been some, some struggles, even though CrossFit was lifting all the ships. Right. But like, tell us some of the dirt, man. Like, come on, like, let's hear what, um, let's hear what you, what you had to endure, so to say, to get this thing rolling. I mean, there are still, oh, there are still struggles. I mean, it's very much not in the past. (laughs) We've grown a lot. Our team is great. Uh, but there are still struggles. I mean, we had a really, we had a difficult time the first year. Um, you know, we bootstrapped for about the first year and then we actually did end up raising a round of funding. Um, we had a difficult time that first year figuring out what kind of company we wanted to be. We started off as barbend.com, basically a blog. And we thought we wanted to be a blog, but then really what we were going to do was pivot to live events. So we spent a lot of our, our own money and we spent a lot of our own time um, live streaming events or doing tests of live stream events. And we realized uh, maybe a few months into that, after a lot of time and a lot of money, that wasn't the future for us. That wasn't where our competitive advantage uh, was, was going to be. And um, we, we really did not want to focus in on that or put all our chips in that basket. 
And for context, can you just tell us kind of what years we're talking about here? That yeah. first year when you bootstrapped? I totally should have clarified. Barbin was founded in March of 2016. Okay. So we're a little over four years old. And we spent a lot of 2016 trying to get this blog going, but also thinking, hey, we want to do live events. We, hey, we want to buy media rights to events. We want to live stream on our platforms. That was when Facebook Live was getting pushed really hard. Yep. That was when a lot of media companies were diving in on live events. I think we've seen as 2020s developed live events have not been uh, the gold mine a lot of people thought they were going to be, or at least the predictable, consistent one. Yep. And you know, it, it wasn't until early 2017 that we realized, like, okay, maybe live events isn't really our thing. Maybe that's not the way to build a consistent business that can grow at all times. And we didn't necessarily want to be beholden to like a pre-existing events calendar. Mm-hmm. So that was a big mistake we made investing in that. We call them tests in hindsight, but you know, if I could go back in time, I would have warned myself like, focus on these other things first. I think too, the fact that we, we were not as revenue oriented the first couple of years as we should have been. Um, hmm. We fortunately did not, did not grow so fast that we had to lay off a hundred people. Mm-hmm. Um, as I've seen some other media companies go through in New York city where we're a pretty small scrappy team still. Um, but I would have been more focused on diversification of revenue streams. It's something that's been a really important factor for us the last 24 months. And I think we've done a pretty decent job of it. And I think we have a lot of room to go. But it's easier to diversify revenue streams the earlier you do it on. When you mean diversify revenue streams, you mean places where revenue can come from, as in offerings or exactly. you know, selling ads or whatever it is. Exactly. It's ads on your site. It's, um, we have explored some e-commerce. It's not a huge part of what we do now, but you know, I'd factor that in as something that media companies are leveraging. It's newsletter sponsorships and sponsored content. It's podcast sponsorships, yep. something you know yeah, a bit about. Um, it's uh, affiliate revenue from you know reviews and, and, and products uh, and things like that. There's a range. Uh, it could be from events as well. There are media companies that make a good bit of money from events. Maybe not right now in June 2020 when we're recording this, yeah. but it is a viable business model for some companies, right? There are a lot of different... Oh, and also... YouTube dollars, mm-hmm. right? Money from uh, money from platforms that uh, that have rev share, like YouTube. Yeah, there are a lot of different ways media companies can make money these days, and we are exploring quite a few of them. And I think we do well on quite a few of them. I really wish that we had. It's not necessarily exploration of revenue that I think we were late on. It was diversification of mm-hmm. revenue and understanding that as a media company, we are strongest when our money comes from a lot of different sources and not all our eggs are in one basket. So on that line of thinking, you know, there's a point at which you have to sort of focus, but you're saying, you know, you needed to be sort of everywhere and do everything pretty well to be diversified in your revenue stream. Like how do you draw that distinction? And and do you think you do it successfully now or are you still working on it? Like how does that play into your story and into what you're doing now? Well, we do it successfully enough in that we're still an operational business, right? And we make enough, we make money. We make so money. That's so that's thing number, yeah. that's thing number one. Um, <laughs> and I would say that that is actually, I think the fundamental tension in niche media today is do you go deep or do you go wide? And where do you, or do you try both? And you kind of go medium and somewhat broad. Yeah. And where do you draw those lines? I think 10 years ago when I was first getting involved in digital media, it made sense to go really deep, right? You could get a lot of specific traffic to your site and make a lot of money on Google AdSense, 
right? You could like, that could be how you made yeah. money, right? Or you, you know, sold a subscription to uh, eBooks or, or something. And that was how you make, made money. And there were a lot of really successful niche brands and niche sites back then that, it's just not, maybe not say brands, but niche sites that had that one revenue stream and that's where they made their money. Mm-hmm. But I think it's not enough to do that these days. And I think the margins have gotten worse across the board on those things. You can't make money like you used to on AdSense, you know, digital courses and uh, selling eBooks is maybe not the gold mine it was for some, for all these folks anymore. Uh, Although I still think there's money to be Mm -hmm. made. And I think the fact that you have to look at these as true media brands, not just a blog uh, is indicative of the fact that you're going to have to spread yourself out across platforms. And I think the fundamental challenge of niche media these days or niche media, however you want to say it, is figuring out, okay, like how thin are you Mm -hmm. spreading yourself? And how are you allocating resources, given the fact that you have limited resources and you have to have multiple irons in the fire? I'm a true believer in the fact that to be a media brand these days, you can't go all in on just Facebook. You can't go all in on just Snapchat and you can't go all in on just on just completely on site monetization. How do those things split up? What gets deprioritized? It's a question we wrestle with every single day. That's good to know that even people who are successful at it still struggle with it because in the entrepreneurial space and any content producing space, you run into Gary Vanderchuk, for example, for five seconds and you're like, yo, I'm not doing enough. I need to put way more out there. (laughs) But then you hear somebody else talking about jack of all trades is master of none, right? And then that's like, okay, now I need to niche and I need to figure out one, you know, I need to just do YouTube or whatever. It's so there's a balance. And obviously every business has a sweet spot, so to say, and every core, you're going to have a different core competency based on who's on your team. But, um, you know, you have to also probably just get out there and try something. And, you know, it sounds like that's what you guys did and you're constantly tweaking and wrestling with it and taking feedback and putting something out and seeing how it performs. And, And there's just sort of an ongoing nature of this as opposed to like set it, forget it. It's one stream and we're done. I completely agree. I think the sweet spot is always changing. I kind of liken it to, you know, if you're selling, call it uh, sweatshirts, we were talking about your USA rowing sweatshirt before this, right? Yeah. Say you're a sweatshirt, you're a kind of a startup sweatshirt brand, your product is sweatshirts, and you're going to try and sell those sweatshirts through different outlets, retail, direct to consumer, different retailers, uh, maybe wholesale, discount, like there are all these different ways you want to try and get your product out there. You want to find a hundred different ways to get one person to buy your sweatshirt. Our product is content. We need to find a hundred different ways to monetize our product. And if you're selling physical goods and you're only selling through one retailer and that retailer drops you or that retailer struggles, you're going to feel those struggles directly. If you're more diversified as far as where people can purchase your product, of course, you're going to be better hedged. The same goes for content. Content is our product. We have to find different platforms for that content to live on. And we need to find different ways to monetize that content, just as any business selling a physical good would want to do with, with their you know, outlets. Relative to the content thing, and I and we're getting to the end of the time, so I gosh, I could ask you like twenty more questions. We could probably keep going for all day, but I um, want to respect your time. So I'll I'll wrap with this before we get to the final section. Is um, you know, in the content creation world, it's getting more saturated than it's ever been. Obviously, like just in the COVID era, I yeah. think April we saw like a hundred thousand podcasts launch and and added to the directories in that month, which is like record setting. Everyone's sitting at home talking to a microphone all of a sudden, right? Um, so they're just recording it and putting it out maybe. I don't know. But it just shows that there's more content than ever, right? How do you 
create stuff that actually breaks through that noise and it, and it creates actual value as opposed to just simply adds to the noise. We approach things as professionally as possible, right? We are not one guy in a blog in a basement. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but we have a professional team of writers and editors, contributors from around the globe, some of them record-setting athletes, respected coaches. We have a lot of different voices. And actually, we're trying to get more diverse in the voices and perspectives we represent. You can have two people who disagree on a concept in strength training, and they're both mm-hmm. correct. It's like it's absolutely insane totally. sometimes. So I think diversity of voices and also the fact that we, you know, we treat things professionally, our content is readable, our site is optimized. These really help us kind of just the fact that we have resources consolidated around our brand really helps us, I think, rise through the noise. And that could be in a Google ranking, or it could be the fact that people actually listen to our podcast. Um, it's always a struggle and you're always fighting to get your content heard, right? That's the other end of the stick. One end is revenue and the other is getting your content out there because without your content being successful, the revenue doesn't really come in. Um, and, and all we can do is get better and better and make sure that the experience that our readers, our listeners, our viewers have is improving over time. And I think it's much easier to do that when you have a team that can give feedback to each other. Um, than if you're an individual or just a few people uh, who might not be able to specialize and like divide and conquer with particular tasks as well. That's really, really well said. And obviously, if you're just starting out, you have a you have a goal all of a sudden now to scale and become a little bit more professional. But um, you know, we all have to start somewhere. But I, I really appreciate the fact that that's because that makes a lot of sense. And there are ways to get yourself looking and sounding and feeling professional without necessarily running a 20 person company or whatever. But, you know, if you want to take this seriously, it requires that you invest and you be serious about it, um, both from, you know, money you put into it and time and energy. So thank you for breaking that down. You know, uh, David, we could sit here and talk about this all day. And and if I don't wrap this up, we probably would. And I want to respect the rest of your day. So I'm going to transition us uh, into the focus five, which is the same five questions I ask every guest on every show. Are you ready? I'm really excited about this one. Let's do it. All right. First question. What book have you gifted most often? Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I actually had a hesitation because there are two that are competing for the top spot, but it's definitely Hitchhiker's Guide. Oh, man, I, read, I haven't read that since like high school, I think. It's so different than what a lot of people normally read. And I find that I gift it to a lot of friends because they need a little bit of humor in their lives. And uh, it's mm-hmm. not necessarily cool for entrepreneurs or business people to read funny books. They got to read books about selling mm-hmm. and, and you know, changing hearts and minds. Sometimes you just need a light read and that's enough to change your perspective and spark some creativity. So Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams has been fantastic at that. That's a really great answer to it as well. If you could get an hour of somebody's time, past or present, live or dead, and ask as many questions as you wanted, who would that person be and why? I knew this question was coming and I still don't have a very uh, a very good answer for it. Um, I, I'd probably go with Andrew Carnegie. And I say that, and he's a controversial figure. There's a lot of good to be said about him and a lot of bad to be said about him. But Part of my childhood, part of my, for a couple of years in, in Pittsburgh, and I remember everything was named after, it's the Carnegie Science Center, the Carnegie Library, and all this stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it made such a, an impact on me as a young child. And that, that philanthropy, a hundred years basically after he died, had an impact on my life to where I know who he is. And, and he did these things, and they worked because I had an interest in, in science and education because of him decades and decades after his death. So he's got a fascinating story. Um, 
you know, an immigrant who came to the United States and, and became one of the titans of the Gilded Age. I don't know if that kind of consolidation of wealth is something to admire, but the impact his philanthropy has, has had certainly is. So I'd love to pick his brain on like, how did you know that this was going to happen? Like, mm -hmm. how did you know that this new model of philanthropy was actually going to work? I'd love to have a deep conversation with him about that. Awesome. What is one thing that you believe that most people would disagree with you on? So most people in my, in the strength sports niche would probably not disagree with this if they're like pretty into it, but I think the general public might. Um, so this is something that I think a lot of people in the strength community believe, but I, I don't think it's permeated the mainstream. And it's that the future of strength sports, and I think strength, the popularization of strength training is uh, female, it's women. And I've been so fortunate that strength sports have exposed me to so many strong women who are physically stronger than I am or ever could dream of being, like by such a huge margin, but also like mentally, their approach to training, things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's really helped reframe, I think, how I see uh, sex and gender and societal roles and the way mm -hmm. society kind of tells us what to expect of certain people without necessarily giving them a chance to express their individuality. And I, it's helped me grow so, so much, like the contrast between me now and, and how I see women mm -hmm. relative to, you know, when I was a little boy on the playground saying like, you know, girls stink, men are strong, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I think strength sports really let people express their individuality and their individual uh, performance and really push the limits of their own bodies and their own minds in a way that I think a lot of aspects of society could probably benefit from. Um, and so, yeah, I think the fact that in strength sports, we can celebrate people for being individuals and being, for being strong people and not just strong men and strong women is, uh, is really cool and, and something that I don't think has permeated enough of society, but it will. I think we're, we're making progress. That's awesome. I, I actually really like that answer because that's a one I haven't heard before. So thank you for sharing that. And give us a glimpse of your morning routine. How do you like to start your day? I'm not a morning person. I'm so bad at morning routines. Like I always, I'm like, this is the week I'm going to get up and work out early. And this is the week I'm going to not have as much coffee in the morning. I'm like, I'm just a terrible morning person. I'm grumpy. My girlfriend says that I look like an owl in the morning because I have big curly hair. And she says it always looks like I have owl ears oh, like when funny. I wake up because I've like slept on different sides of my head. And like I only have one eye open. Um, so my morning routine is just terrible. It's like crawl toward coffee and like maybe try if I'm, if I'm having a good morning, like hydrate myself with water before I drink coffee. I'm not a breakfast person. I hate to not have a bad answer for this, but like... I know, this is a great answer because the just, reason I ask it is as much to like get people inspired to improve their routine, but to also show that you don't have to do the 5 a.m. green smoothie standing on your head doing yoga, reading a book thing. You know, you can kind of start your day whatever suits you. I've seen 5 a.m. much more often in my life from staying up and like working or something like that until 5 yeah. a.m. than getting up at 5 a.m. <laughs> well said. All right, man. Well, David, uh, what is the best place online that we can connect with you? Well, definitely uh, the best place to connect with Barbend is barbend.com. We're at we're Barbend on most social platforms or Barbend News on a couple, but you look for Barbend, you'll find us. And then we have the Barbend podcast, which I host most of the time. Me personally, you can find me on Instagram at David Thomas Tao and on Twitter at D and then underscore T-A-O. So D underscore Tao. 
Cool. I will link to all of that stuff down in the show notes, guys. So you don't have to remember it. You just go down there, click, and you'll find David and Barbend. Um, David, thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, really appreciate everything you brought. It's been such an engaging interview and a lot of fun. So really appreciate you. Appreciate you having me, Hans. And that's a wrap on today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you want to connect with David, head into the show notes. I've got all of his social stuff as well as everything Barbend related down there. And you can also find my social media accounts as well as my Calendly link, which of course gets you onto my calendar for a 15-minute chat. Would love to continue to doing that, getting to know who you are, how I can keep providing value to you through this show, and some feedback. Uh, So thank you in advance for that. And without any further ado, let's go ahead and sign it off for today. This is Hans Strazina, host of Another Way to Play. And remember to make every chapter better than the last. Thanks for joining in for this episode of Another Way to Play, making the next chapter of your life better than your last. For more insights and inspiration to help you make that personal leap, be sure to engage with Hans on social media and get your questions answered right here on the show. Reach out to Hans at ChiefSNAH on Instagram and we'll catch you on the next episode of Another Way to Play.